Hello, friends. Um, today's message is called Faith Activation. It's based on Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, as many of you may know by now, I had a car accident on Friday. I totaled my car. I was not seriously injured in it, thank God, as angels were surrounding me. Um, the car is totaled. I am not. So I'm here just to do a little review uh, for the last four weeks, we've been talking about the basics of spiritual life. Uh, four weeks ago, we said he's God and we are not. The second week, we talked about how God doesn't need us, but we desperately need him. In our third week, what God demands, he supplies. And last week, what you seek, you find. Now, each of these covers a major area of our relationship with God and leads to a personal response. And I'd encourage you to go back and listen. That's... Uh, docvmp.sermon.net. You can find all the messages there. Well, number five moves us into a new area. I'm going to call it activating our faith. Faith is the most prominent word in religion. Sometimes the word refers to an entire religious system, such as Christianity or Islam or Judaism. In other contexts, it refers to a body of doctrine, but most of the time faith refers to our personal response to God. The faith of this principle is not a religion or a set of doctrines, but rather our daily moment-by-moment -moment trust in God. When our faith is put to work, it releases God's power in us and through us. Now, we know from Hebrews 11.6 that without faith it's impossible to please God. So no matter how religious you may be, if you do not have faith, you cannot please God. Now, this may come as a surprise to those who have trusted in their religiosity, to get them to heaven, but God looks on the heart, and what he looks for is faith. See, you can be baptized, go to church, give money, attend Sunday school, read your Bible, fast three times a week, sing in the choir, even be a missionary, but if you do not have faith, you will not please God. Faith, genuine faith, that comes from the heart, matters more to him than anything we say or do. Now, faith is never meant to be a one-time experience. And in some circles, it's tempting to fall into that trap because we put so much emphasis on being saved by faith. I mean, we talk about accepting Christ, uh, trusting Christ, giving our hearts to Jesus. And this is well and good, but sometimes we leave the impression that having been saved by faith, the rest of life is up to us. Not so. The same faith that saves us is the faith that carries us from day to day. That's why Romans 11, 1, 17, Romans 1, 17 says, The just shall live by faith. The whole Christian life is a life of faith. We're saved by faith, kept by faith, we walk by faith, we endure by faith, we rejoice by faith and serve by faith and love by faith and sacrifice by faith, we pray by faith, we worship by faith, we obey by faith. You know, we even get married by faith and we have children by faith. All that we do, we do by faith. The question before us today, then, is simple and profound. What is faith, and how does it work? Now, this is a crucial topic because I think we often don't appreciate how precious and precarious is the life of faith. Let's deal with faith defined, first of all. In the entire Bible, there is no clearer instruction on faith than Hebrews chapter 11. Most of us know it as the Hall of Fame of Faith, and here we have a long list of Old Testament heroes most of them introduced with the word by faith. By faith Abel, by faith Enoch, by faith Noah. 
and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses' parents and Moses himself and all the people and the people who walked around the walls as Jericho's walls fell or Rahab the prostitute. And he doesn't even have time to mention the individual exploits of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. They and all the other heroes of faith are summarized in this fashion. This is Hebrews 11:33 to 35. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised. Who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword. Whose weaknesses was turned into strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Now that's a wonderful list, and we can think of all of the great biblical heroes who did these things, but that's only part of the story. Verses 35 to 38 go on. It says others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered around in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground. Now, who are those poor souls? What have they done to deserve such punishment? Well, they are others who live by faith. These men and women who endured such torment were living by faith just as much as Noah, Abraham, Moses, or Joshua. Their faith was not weaker. If anything, their faith was stronger because it enabled them to endure incredible suffering. They are not lesser saints because they found no miracle. If anything, they are greater saints because they were faithful even when things didn't work out right. Verse 39 gives us a summary statement of the whole list. It says, these were all commended for their faith. And you know, as we stand back and study this list, three factors quickly emerge. First, though these individuals are widely separated by time and space and by personality and individual achievement, they're joined by one common factor. What they did, they did by faith. There isn't much that joins Abraham and Rahab except this. At a crucial time, they each acted in faith, and God saw that faith and rewarded it. Second, living by faith often meant moving against the tide of public opinion. I mean, think about this. Noah built an ark out in the middle of nowhere, nowhere close to water. Abraham left his hometown of Ur. Moses rejected Egypt, and Jericho marched around, or Joshua marched around Jericho. The same principle holds true today. If you decide to live by faith, you will definitely stand out from the crowd, and you may face opposition and ridicule. Third, Hebrews 11 demonstrates that the life of faith is not a rarity. You know, it's easy to look at Enoch or Noah or Joseph or Moses or David and say, I could never do that. Deep down in our hearts, we have believed a lie that the life of faith is restricted to, quote, special people. But that's the very reason this chapter is in the Bible, so that we would know that these are ordinary men and women who did extraordinary things simply because they had faith in God. Hebrews 11.1 offers us a concise definition of faith. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. I kind of like the old King James a little bit more. It's a little bit more picturesque. It says, now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. 
Now, substance is an unusual word that refers to the essential nature of things. It's, it was sometimes used of the foundation of a house and outside the New Testament was used for the title deed to a piece of property. So, in a way, faith is the title deed to things in the future, things hoped for, things promised by the Lord. Now, evidence refers to legal proof in a courtroom. So, faith is proof to the soul that enables us to see things that cannot be seen by the naked eye. By faith, we see what would otherwise be invisible. Now, let me pause just for a moment for application. See, there's a sense in which living by faith requires a measure of holy discontent. You've got to want some things that you don't have in order to have faith, because faith always deals with things hoped for. i got to tell you, if you've already got everything you need, want, and desire, and if for you all the promises of God have already come true, and if you've reached a state of spiritual perfection, if all your prayers have been answered, and if all your loved ones are saved, and if there's no lack anywhere in any area that you can see, you don't need faith because you're already in heaven. You don't realize it. And if you're satisfied with the current state of affairs, then I'd say you could skip this message altogether, click off, go do something else, because this doesn't really apply to you. But I will tell you, as long as marriages break up and children suffer and the killing continues and our leaders disappoint us, and as long as there is hatred and violence and prejudice and all manner of evil in this world, we will need faith because the things hoped for have not yet come to pass. Now, what is faith? I like to think about three words, believe and see and do. Faith believes what others do not believe. Faith sees what others do not see. And faith does what others do not do. True faith is never passive. True faith moves us to act, to do, to try, to build, to attempt, to expand on, to say no to sin, yes to righteousness, to join, to speak out, to move forward, to dare to dream beyond our means, and to walk around our Jerichos again and again until at last the walls come tumbling down. You know, faith, as someone once told me, is outrageous trust in God. Outrageous trust is building an ark hundreds of miles from water. Outrageous trust compels you to leave your home not knowing where you're going. Outrageous trust sends you into the Elah Valley to face a Goliath. I have to ask you, friends, have you ever needed outrageous trust in God? If not, I think your Christian life has been way too boring. Let me illustrate faith for you. Let's take a closer look at Moses in Hebrews 11, 24-27. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Now, there are five words in what I just read you that kind of tell the story here. It's refused, chose, regarded, persevered, and saw. He said no to one thing because he chose to do something else. He made that choice because he regarded God's promises as true. He found the strength to endure 40 years in Midian because he saw him who is invisible. And everything hinges on the first word, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
Now, that may not seem like much to us, but it was a life-changing decision for him. Recall that when Pharaoh's daughter found him floating in a basket near the Nile River shore, she rescued him, raised him as her own son. That meant he received a complete Egyptian education in science, history, and philosophy. It meant he was trained to be the leader, a leader of the nation. It meant he was raised in the lap of luxury, having the best of everything at his fingertips. Now, some scholars even suggest that in those days, the line of succession passed through the daughter of Pharaoh. If so, that means that Moses was in line to become the leader of the most powerful nation on earth. Moses had everything he wanted and everything that most people would give anything to have. But here's the irony of it all. When he got to the height of his power, he gave it all up. He refused. He relinquished. He let it all go. It was not an easy decision to make because he knew that no one, least of all Pharaoh's daughter who raised him, to whom he owed his life, would understand. It seemed foolish as if he was throwing away his whole future. By any normal standard, it just did not make sense. But note how the text puts it. It says, He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God. Now, it doesn't call them the Jews or the Hebrews, even though those terms would be accurate. Moses didn't make his decision on a racial or ethnic basis. It's as if Moses stood in front of the Egyptians and said something like this. Folks, you thought you knew me, but you didn't. I'm not one of you, and I've never been one of you. I may look like you and talk like you and dress like you and act like you, but deep down in my heart, I'm a different person. All these years in your midst haven't changed my basic identity. Those Hebrew slaves who seem so troublesome to you, I'm one of them because they're the followers of the true and living God. Though you hate and despise them, they're my people, and I cannot stand by and turn my face away while they're suffering. If they are hated, I will be hated too. If they suffer, I will suffer. If they are mistreated, then I will be mistreated with them. What happens to them will happen to me. I will no longer live as if I were an Egyptian, because I am not. I am a follower of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In his time, I cast my lot with my own people. And friends, you know, with that one act, Moses committed what people today would call career suicide. He gave up the riches of Egypt and the pleasures of sin for a season in order to join the motley band of Hebrews who were so hated by the Egyptians. And he found his strength to endure the persecution because he saw him who is invisible. You know, that's really one of the most remarkable and revealing statements in the entire Bible. So how do you see an invisible person? Well, two words, by faith. Moses had faith, and his faith gave him sight, and and he saw the God who is invisible. The Egyptians didn't see, but Moses did, and that's what faith can do. Now, what exactly did Moses see? Well, the text says he was looking ahead to his reward. Now, let me explain that in this way. Moses knew there were two worlds, and he could choose to live by the values of either one. There was the world he could see, the world of Egypt, the world of the senses, the world of money, power, sex, self-gratification, military power, and on and on. That was the world where Pharaoh ruled as king. As far as the Egyptians knew, that was the only world. The little g-gods they worshipped were nothing more than an extension of their own perverted values. But there was and is another world, the invisible world of the spirit, the realm of God, Jesus, the angels, the saints, ruled by righteousness and entered by grace. 
And here's the kicker in this story. Those who live for this world will have the reward this world offers. They will live for 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or maybe 90 and 100 plus years, and they will have as much fame or wealth or power as they can amass. Their reward from this world will be in this world. And when they die, all that they live for will die with them. They'll be buried in a box in the ground and have nothing substantial to show for their time on planet Earth. But, and many of you know there's always a but, and this but makes all the difference. Those who live in this world by the standards of the eternal world have an entirely different experience. Like Moses, they may suffer in the short run, but when they die, the party is just getting started. They enter into the joy of the Lord. And frankly, those who live in this world by the values of the next one will have deeper joy and greater satisfaction even while they are rejected and ridiculed by those around them. Somehow Moses saw all of this. He figured out that it wasn't worth it to live in Egypt. The pleasures of sin for a season didn't measure up against the joy of serving the Lord, even if that meant temporary suffering and putting up with a bunch of crabby Jews for 40 years in the wilderness. It just didn't matter. For him, there was only one choice. He would suffer with the people of God. End of discussion. If the people of Egypt didn't like it or didn't understand it, so be it. He might have been Pharaoh if he had stayed, and that didn't bother him in the least. If he had stayed in Egypt, we would have never heard of him, and I'd be preaching about somebody else today. So the question is, in which world do you want to make your mark? If you want to make it big in Egypt, good luck. You'll have your reward, and you won't be happy when you get it. If you want to live for the next world, you can, but it'll cost you something in the meantime. Now, let's go back to that statement that Moses saw him who is invisible. Faith sees what is really there, even though others see nothing at all. Faith believes what is true, even when others don't believe it at all. By faith, we see reality, which means we see beyond the world around us. But that concept should not seem strange at all. After all, that great hymn of the church, Amazing Grace, contains this line. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Friends, the hidden world of eternal reality is there whether you see it or not. And by faith we see it, even though the people of the world do not. Faith sees the invisible, believes the incredible, and receives the impossible. If we can do that, then we will be able to believe the incredible, and in God's time, we will receive the impossible. Well, as we come to the end of this study, we can draw three important conclusions about the nature of faith. Number one, faith is not a feeling, but a conscious choice to believe what God has said. We will never progress in the spiritual life as long as we stay on the plane of our feelings. If Noah waited until he felt like building an ark, He'd never have laid the first piece of gopher wood. If Joshua waited to feel like marching around Jericho, those walls might still be standing. Feelings are important, but they are not the basis of true faith. When you're in a hospital waiting room while a loved one is in surgery, you may or may not feel positive. In that moment, you must consciously choose to believe that God is who he said he is and that he will do what he said he would do. Second application, faith acts even in the face of doubt and opposition. If we wait until all the circumstances are in our favor, we'll probably wait forever. 
David didn't wait for Goliath to go blind. He trusted God and walked down into the valley to face that giant. Someone said that faith is belief plus unbelief and acting on the belief part. Sooner or later, we all have to act on the belief part. Abraham did. Moses did. Samuel did. All the heroes of faith in the Bible acted on the belief part. And friends, you can too. But what if you face that proverbial leap of faith? What then? Christian writer Barbara Winter said, When you come to the end of everything you know and are faced with the darkness of the unknown, faith is knowing one of two things will happen. Either there will be something solid for you to stand on, or you will be taught how to fly. Our third application is this. Faith sees what others do not see. My favorite definition of faith comes from Philip Yancey, who said, Faith means believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. I mean, so many things in this life make no sense at all to us. I imagine that every person who's listening to this message has a few very deep and personal questions that defy all human answers. We want to know why things happen the way they do and why couldn't things have happened some other way. It'd be wrong to say that faith provides all the answers. It doesn't. Maybe in heaven someday we'll fully understand, or in heaven our desire to know will be transformed by our vision of the Lord. By faith we see things that are invisible, and by faith we believe in advance those things that right now make no sense, but one day will. We will view them in reverse. The world says seeing is believing. God says believing is seeing. One final word and I'm done. Biblical faith is never faith in faith, as if we were believing in our own power of logic or self-persuasion. Faith can never be stronger than the object on which it rests. Since our faith rests on Jesus, the essence of faith is following him wherever he leads. I kind of wrote out a little acrostic using that word of faith, F-A-I-T-H. And it stands for forsaking all, I take him. Following Jesus can be risky business. Indeed, you may wonder if everything will work out right if you follow him. It depends on what you mean. I want you to go back and reflect on 9-11. You may remember that Todd Beamer finished saying the Lord's Prayer with the attendant who took his phone call from United Flight 93 on September the 11th. He turned to the men with him and said, Are you ready? Let's roll. Now, by faith, that Christian young man put the phone down, started down the aisle toward the hijackers, ready to face his destiny. In the struggle that followed, he and his fellow passengers lost their lives, but they saved the nation from an even greater tragedy. Did it work out all right for him? I think from heaven, Todd would answer, yes. And I think we can safely draw three conclusions about those who live by faith. They will see great triumphs and endure great trials. They will be misunderstood by the world, and they will be glad they did what they did in the end. Our call is not to understand, but to follow Jesus wherever he leads, whatever it costs. His words to all of us is always the same. Come, follow me. To be a disciple of Jesus means to get on the road, on the Jesus road, and follow wherever it takes you. No guarantees, no deals, no special promises. You simply walk that road every day following in your master's steps. Don't be afraid to follow Jesus.
You'll never regret starting down the Jesus road. Your only regret will be that you waited so long to do it. Are you ready to follow Jesus wherever he leads? Now some of you may ask, what if Jesus asks me to do something I can't do? Well, guess what? He will. If he only asked you to do something you could do, you wouldn't need him. I promise you this, if you decide to follow Jesus, he will ask you to do the impossible, and then he will help you do it. Our part is simply to take the next step, the next step God puts in front of you. You don't have to see ten steps down the road. Faith means taking the next step and leaving the rest in the hands of God. Faith is the law of the kingdom, and active faith releases God's power. Every blessing of the kingdom is available to those who put their faith to work, moment by moment, day by day, one little step at a time. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. I wonder if other names could be added to that list. Why not try it now and add your name to the end of this statement? By faith, May God give us steady courage to follow the Lord so that someday our names might be added to the long list of men and women who lived and died by faith. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, feel the passion.